So it really is a pleasure for me to welcome you here today for the 2045 interview. And essentially for folks listening to the 2045 interview for the first, uh, for the first time uh, is creating a vision for the year 2045, exploring means of getting there. And part of the process is to interview people that are thinking about what the world might be in 2045 or after, and especially so given the current huge global challenges we face, climate and pandemic, just to name two of them. So we all know that radical change is absolutely necessary. And so it's a pleasure to welcome Sharif today, who's been working in this area for a long, long time. And so it was very easy for me today, uh, when I knew I was going to be conducting this interview, to go get to go get this wonderful book that's been on the shelf with the kind of my sacred collection, a book that Sharif wrote in 1999 called Creating a World That Works for All. And one of the profound things I remember about reading that, uh, reading that book was Sharif's you know, wise observation that everybody thinks they have the answer. He said, no, no, we all have a piece of the answer. And, and I think that that is more evident today than ever. And in some ways that is so consistent with the, the vision of 2045, trying to coordinate and get people working in this area to collaborate with each other, which is something that hasn't been um, done as much as it might be. Just a little bit about Sharif. I know that he came through a very challenging and difficult childhood uh, in Camden, New Jersey, where I happened to go to law school, so I understand what Camden is like. And you know, the the, the short story it was a it was a, a challenging upbringing. And Sharif somehow was able to move through that period of time, went to law school in Boston, practiced law for a number of years as an activist lawyer, and then decided that uh, he might do a lot more as a writer, as an activist. I know that he was involved in the um, peacekeeping movement in Sri Lanka when they had their civil war down there and many other causes along the way. I'm most intrigued by uh, one of his latest book calls, The Chronicles of the Upheavals, where he posits a vision for a positive future, and, and we'll get into that. For the past couple of months, I've been fairly uneasy about some things. This catalyzed in some work that I'm doing with regard to starting an awakening center, and we're going to be talking about awakening centers when we talk about the Chronicles of the Upheavals. But the idea is a place that actually models how human beings can and should live, work, play, pray together in a 21st century context. So someone in, in Kansas um, offered some land and he said, okay, let's go. And as soon as we did that, we ran right into the brick wall of all of the, all of the beliefs and assumptions of what we mean when we talk about anything, our, our consciousness. Taking an unreformed consciousness into a transformed 21st century simply doesn't work. 
So uh, for the past month or two, I've kind of been in a bit of a tailspin. Like, how are we going to get past, how do we get past ourselves? Does that make any sense? That How do you actually get past the, the stumbling block? Um, and so, and right now I'm looking for a really cool quote I came across the other day. And this is a quote by someone who appears to be anonymous or unknown. Uh, and they really should own this because the more I say it, the more it becomes something coming out of my mouth. Um, it, and, and the quote was, the most crucial step towards solving a problem is to be able to recognize yourself as part of the problem. Now, we're so used to pointing our finger over there, over there, over there. Those guys over there need to change their consciousness. That's, that's what most of us mean when we talk about consciousness change. Very, very few of us want to actually own that, that we are an integral part of the problem or uh, we'll do, well, I, haven't, I haven't bought my Prius yet, or I haven't changed all my light bulbs yet, but not recognizing that, no, we're talking about an integral part of all of the problems. Uh, Václav Havel talked about the line between the victim and the victimizer running through each one of our hearts. The victimizer part is the part that we don't pay any attention to. I've been to Auschwitz twice, uh, once on a personal pilgrimage and once uh, at the invitation of um, a bunch of people to do to talk about specifically about Auschwitz, Auschwitz and, and the concept of inclusivity. And when I was on my personal pilgrimage, um, I was sitting um, literally inside the the um, bombed out uh, crematorium where they were burning the bodies. And instead of sitting there as the victim, I sat there as the German designers who sat down with pencil and paper and designed a death factory and realized, oh, we could have made this much more efficient. You know, we could have had the railroad cars come right into the crematorium. You know, uh, why, why bother having people walking all around? It's like, just, just pull them in, gas them, kill them, burn them, and take the ashes out to the farms. To know that that energy is inside of me, not inside of those people over there. Rec I recognize that, yes, we could move to move into fascism. But if we do, it will be with my energy also. Therefore, I have to look for a very substantial and a very powerful fix to all the stuff that I'm looking at. So I'm getting to, I'm getting to the past two weeks now. So, um, so I, I've been kind of in this tailspin for a couple, for about the past month. And then um, through circumstances, I won't bother boring you with, I realized that there's another book that I've been meaning to write 
for at least 50 years and it's time to write it. And this is a book on power. And, um, and the reason I say 50 years, when I first went to college, uh, Clark University in, Mass in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, I wanted to take a course on power. Uh, I was uh, very early into the Black Power movement, uh, very early. I think I read Stokely Carmichael's Black Power. Um, I think the ink was still wet on it when I, when I, when I got my copy of it. Um, and we, and I was, I was uh, in uh, a founding member of the Black Panthers in uh, Philadelphia, and we were were constantly talking about power to the people. And I was always uneasy with that slogan because I didn't know what it meant. So, okay, I'm gonna go to college and I'm gonna take a course on power. That's what I, that's what I went to college for. And guess what? They don't offer any, you know? And so I said, okay, well, uh, politics is power. So let me take a course on political science. If you've ever had a course on political science, you know, <laughs> ain't no power in the room at all. Um, that can even put the lights out. I said, okay, next semester, economics, money is power. So I took a course in economics, ain't none there. And as I, as I kind of stumbled through all the offerings of the university, I realized they don't offer power. Our society runs on it, but we don't know what it is. We're talking about the creation of a new society, perhaps even a new civilization. And we don't, we don't have a firm grip on what we're creating. We're like the young boys in Lord of the Flies, where as soon as we get the opportunity, we will recreate the mess that we've got right now with new characters and expecting a new result. And guess what? There won't be one. Tell us why specifically you think that what you just said is, is, is true. Slash, what's the, what's the answer for creating a world that's different? Right. Um, oh, the way to, okay, so that, that one's easy, okay? <laughs> to create a world that's different, you get a bunch of guys with a bunch of guns, you start shooting a whole bunch of people, and then you, and then, uh, you, you take over Kabul, and then you've got a world that's different, you know? But you've also got a world that still that functions exactly the same for the people that you just kicked out of out of uh, power. The idea behind creating a world that works for all. Okay, this is, it's interesting that we went straight to my cutting edge stuff here because I'm still working on this. I definitely want a recording of this to find out what I said. Okay, <laughs> um, so so creating a world that works for all, as you said, the book has been out for for what 20, 20 22 years, and when I sat down with um, uh, my publisher, Steve Persanti at Barrett Kohler, 
uh, uh, Steve actually edited the book. And uh, when we were getting toward the finish line, he, they, they asked some fairly standard questions. And one of them is, what do you think the trajectory of, trajectory of this book is? Like how, how big is this book? And I had been thinking about this for a while and like working through my ego stuff around thinking about it for a while. And I said that uh, creating a world that works for all, um, uh, what's the name of the book? 11 years on a New York Times bestseller list. Oh, The Road Less Traveled. I said, this could be bigger than The Road Less Traveled. Uh, taking nothing away from the road less traveled, I think it was it was it was um, a pretty okay book. Um, and needless to say, that didn't work. That 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 prediction didn't happen. And I think the reason that that uh, it didn't happen is that creating a world that works for all is not the same thing as saying I want the world to be a better place. I go out here on this street and I pick up one cigarette button, put it in the trash can, and I've made the world a better place. I can go back and do whatever the hell I feel like doing now. Creating a world that works for all means that I have to give up my position and look at the position of... Um, I, I take 20 or 30 different human beings from around the world, um, a uh, fisherman in Sri Lanka, a seamstress in Bangladesh, a um, uh, somebody who drives a truck for Amazon in the US, etc. And then that's my human co cohort. And then I've got to take um, 10 or 15,000 other beings from different species saying, how does the world work for that bird right there? How does the world work for that tree right over there? Um, and um, uh, my friend Joanna Macy created something that she called the Council of All Beings, uh, where you sit in a room not as a human being. You, you get assigned an animal. You're sit there, sitting there as part of the fish nation. You're sitting there part of the, the, the winged nation. And um, uh, so we have to learn how to do that. Um, for a while in downtown Portland, I did a, um, uh, a monthly series called Learning to Think and Act Like a Planet. And that's what we need to do is learn how to think and then act, not as human beings, but as an entire planet. This is especially true since the metamorphosis we're going through is going to be so profound. Now, the really easy part is um, we don't have to do very much because Mother Earth herself is shifting the tables right under our feet. And if we are, if, if what we're trying to do is hold the line, if what we're trying to do is get all the fire trucks in the world to line up to keep the forest fires away from us, we are fighting, that's just one battle we'll lose, okay? If we're trying to keep every human being from getting COVID, that's another battle we are losing. By just defining the battle, we've lost it, okay? Um, and so 
we need to be asking, we don't have a common solution or common even set of solutions because we don't even see a common problem. Some of us see that the problem is the white power structure. Some of us see the, the problem as the patriarchy. Some of us see the problem as colonialism. Some of us see the problem as capitalism. Some of us see the solution as capitalism. We're, we are, are all over the place. And I don't think any of those get anywhere near the central issues of um, this world is functioning according to our consciousness. And if we don't change the consciousness, it will just continue um, to, to run out. And when it runs out, that it runs out and something else will take its place. Human beings may be involved with that, but at the rate we're going, we won't be. And that'll be okay too. The earth will go on. Um, uh, I think it was, um, what's his name? Um, Lovelock, who was saying, you know, the next hundred years, the earth will look like it's got a really bad cold and it'll, it'll, it'll bounce back, uh, maybe without us, you know. Um, and so our challenge is, um, oh, okay, I'm sorry. So my challenge, this is right, I'm right on the, the uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right at what I was working on last night. Um, is uh, this book on power, doing the outline for it, and then realizing that I'm talking about two books, because one is uh, an analysis of power, and then power from the point of view of, um, this is how we get to the butterfly. Okay, I'm, I, I got I, I am, I'm awake now. <laughs> and um, I've got a, um, uh, a story that you may have actually heard of. This happened like maybe in the last six months or so. Um, woman in Uganda uh, is having a baby. She's, she goes to the hospital, does her yelling and screaming and out pops a baby. And um, she's happy, her husband's happy. They bundle up their little bundle of joy and take, I don't remember whether him or her, but take the, take the child home. A week later, she is experiencing uh, extreme abdominal discomfort um, and uh, concerned. Her husband takes her to the hospital. By the time she's there, she gets there, she's yelling and screaming and they give her an x-ray and they find this tumorous mass in her stomach. And they're about to open her up for emergency uh, surgery. And out pops another baby. She was one of the very rare women with two wombs. Her husband got her pregnant in both of her wombs. She had the two babies a week apart. And then when they, when they hand her this tumor called the baby, <laughs> it's like, oh, that's what all that yelling and screaming was about, okay? <laughs> so we are completely focused 
on the yelling, the screaming, and the pain, we're not saying, asking the question, what is it that wants to be born now? What's the vision that makes all of this stuff uh, ne not only necessary, but a prelude to the joy of a birth? For those of you who have been involved in a birth, I'm not sure you can name a messier process. I mean, there's gunk and there's junk and there's afterbirth and there's all this other stuff that you don't have any memory of because you're sitting there looking at this baby. We, especially through our media, are spending all of our time looking at the afterbirth. We don't even believe that there's a baby in there anywhere. What we have to do is discipline ourselves so that we're not doing that, so that we actually are paying attention to the baby that wants to be born. And I'm going to pause right there because I know this is supposed to be an interview and I, I, I can, I can, um, I can go, I can go for a while. So no, the yeah, part, the, the, the pause is perfect. So, yeah. so just to, just to contextualize what it is you've said. All right. So you've talked a little bit about, you know, if we keep going the way we're going, we may not even be around anymore as a, as a species, mother earth will survive. No question about that. All right. And, and you just told us a wonderful story about the potential for a bundle of joy and, and, a, and a spark of a wonderful life that's, that's possible. How might we as a species get to that place where that joy uh, emerges for many, 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 many human beings? What's your possible vision for how we as a species can get through this and emerge on the other side uh, as, as a, a functional species? I'm writing down functional species because I think it's a strange sounding thing that's actually pretty accurate. Um, what I've been talking about is something I'm calling relationism. Okay, we've had capitalism, we have communism, but how do we relate to um, all beings? And the first being we have to relate to is ourselves. Uh, we don't have a relationship with ourselves. Uh, the, 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 just the, the sheer fact that there is a suicide rate and that it's steadily climbing means that we're out of relationship with ourselves. We're out of relationship with all other human beings. The primary industry of human beings on our planet is staying away from each other the trillions and trillions of dollars we spend on militaries, the th hundreds and thousands of dollars that, that each of us spends on our personal security. Uh, I mean, how many keys do you have on your key ring? Um, um, all of these things are, are an integral part of us acting as though we are not a species. So the first thing that we're going to be doing is the beginning the process 
of acting like we are actually connected with each other and that that connection matters. The second piece is how do we then connect with all other beings? Well, um, there are people on the planet who have been doing that. We just need to ask them, uh, <clears throat> excuse us, you've been trying to tell us this for about a million years, but for about the last 10,000 years, but uh, how do you say we do that again? <laughs> and, um, and I'm talking about the keepers. Uh, and this is something that is, I think, a really important part of creating a world that works for all to recognize that there are three different kinds of consciousness on the planet. And this does away with all of the, 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 the faulty ways of analyzing things. So um, this, is, this gets us beyond racism, beyond patriarchy, beyond um, sexism, beyond all of that stuff. They're keepers, they're breakers, and then they're menders. The keepers are the people that we call the indigenous people. These are people who have lived within the earth's tolerances for as long as they've, that they've been there. When we say that humanity could be destroyed, we're talking about our humanity, not theirs. If we go down the tubes, somebody would have to go to them and tell them Okay, because they wouldn't recognize it because we're, they're, they're, they are connected to the earth and connected to other beings and will continue to live their life that way without our interference. The breakers are those who break the sacred hoop. The breakers are those who say, I don't live with the earth, I live on top of the earth. And I guess we could, we could, we could have a, a group we would call the eco breakers in that they say they're working for the earth, but they still see humanity as superior to all other beings. And that gives us a responsibility to do extra or extra Y or Z. So it's, it's like, I'm going to save the earth with the same consciousness that broke it. Um, Einstein said that, that doesn't work real well. And so um, we know not to do that. Third group. Third group is the menders. And the menders are those of us who recognize that we're part of the problem. We're, I was raised as a breaker. I, I've got two breaker degrees, okay? Um, I'm certified, okay? <laughs> and, um, and I recognize that in order for the earth to survive in order for me to survive, I have to let that go. And so for the last few decades, I've been working hard to let go of my breakerness and to embrace the values of the keepers. Um, okay, so now I will take another sip of tea. As a, as a person sharing, you know, those breaker degrees with you, the, the question pops up in my mind, you know, in my simplistic view, we've got, we've got, you know, two absolutely raging um, challenges right in front of us, you know, the pandemic and the climate. And how is it 
that, that we as a human species, those of us who have been breakers and have lived in the breaker world, how is it that we can transform ourselves in a period of time such that we are able to break this cycle and um, step back into a life that's more congruent with other species on earth and in some ways create the world that is gonna work for uh, all slash at least a whole lot more of us. What's your, what's, what's a path that you see that's possible? Um, I am glad you brought up these uh, two issues because um, in order for us to solve a problem, we have to understand what is the problem. Um, I have to, to say that I am not a uh, COVID conspiracy theorist. I, I, you know, COVID is something that's real. It exists in the world. Um, you can catch it. You can, it'll do something to you, etc. So uh, I am vaccinated. In both of these issues, in the pandemic issue and then the climate issue, I think the problem is that we don't understand the problem. Some countries set out to manage COVID. You remember this, the phrase, um, uh, flatten the curve. Um, yeah. Yeah. Other countries set out to stop COVID. The countries that set out to stop COVID stopped it cold. The countries that set out to manage COVID, it's still raging. You know, what did Einstein say about doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? Insanity. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were Joe Biden, glad I'm not. I would have said on the day that I, I um, was elected, I would have said to my team, we're sending a dozen people to Singapore, to New Zealand, to Hong Kong, and we're going to find out how they stopped COVID. And then we're just going to do what they're doing. Because once you say that, you stop it. Until you say that, while, while you, until you say, those people over there know more than I know myself, until you get over, you know, white coat syndrome, lab coat syndrome, and stop saying, we, because we're spending the most money, we have to know the most about this situation. You will never, ever see the problem and you'll never ever see the solution. Global climate change, people get, are getting upset about it because what it means is that, not that you know polar bears are dying or forests are dying, it's that my life is gonna be upset. What I want is the status quo and I'm gonna do anything I can do to keep the status quo. And to my response to that is to hell with your status quo because that is the thing that's been destroying the earth not just changing the climate, 
It's changing all of our environments. We've all seen the, all of the hockey sticks of, of how we can't do this anymore. Uh, William Catton did research on how many people the earth will support. At the level of the keepers, it'll support billions and billions and billions of people. Yeah, you actually can't even, can't even calculate the number. At the level of the average American, the people on the call right now, the earth won't support 200 million people. It won't even support all Americans. Now, that just simply means, oh, I wanna be one of the people it supports. <laughs> you know, screw all those people back there, screw the entire earth. I don't wanna give up my stuff. We know how to live on a planet that's hot. There are people who have been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years. We know how to live on a planet that's cold. There are people who have been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years. No one's been living the way we've been living. So whether the climate change means that we get hot, then we start wearing um, thubes and burkas and turbans and we get, we, we get with the program. If, the, if, it, if it, uh, the planet is getting cold, we start learning how to build igloos and we start um, you know, we're wearing um, walrus skin coats and we get with the program. It's not about what we want. It's about what the earth wants. And I got more to say about that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, stop right there. So what needs to happen Okay, for more mm -hmm. of us, I won't say survive, but for more of us to potentially thrive on this planet. What's your yep. what's your what's your vision? What what needs to happen? I thought you, where you were going to go be, before, um, and maybe I'll ask this directly: What change of consciousness? What change of awareness? What change of mindset um, mm -hmm. do you think needs to happen? I went to the Himalayas about six or seven years, about seven or eight years ago now. Uh, I wound up in the proverbial cave in the, at the 15,000 foot level. Um, and if you've ever been at 15,000 feet, you know there's not an awful lot of oxygen up there, okay? I spent most of my time um, breathing, uh, really, really consciously breathing. I wound up in this, in this um, former abandoned um, uh, temple that's stuck in the side of the, of the mountain. Uh, it was so old, it was really unclear whose temple it was. It could have been a Buddhist temple, but it could have been a Bond temple also that predates that predated Buddhism. And I meditated there for a couple of days on a particular question. And my question was, what's the thing that's going to make the change? Well, you know, like, like I've been working on this for, you know, half a decade, half, half a century. What's, what is actually going to make the change? And I thought that I was going to receive, you know, the magic pen and, you know, we'd be able to, to, to you know, write a whole new book or whatever. Um, and very specifically, what 
powers did we have hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago that allowed humanity to build something like the Great Pyramid, to allow humanity to build something like Gobekli Tepe? The answer was, there isn't a special, special um, technique. There isn't the magic pen. What there is, is a power that all human beings have. You automatically have it. The, however, the only way you can exercise it is by exercising it together. You have to blend your consciousness. We were raised saying, thinking that I, sitting here in Portland, Oregon, I have my consciousness. Y'all sitting wherever you are right now, you have your consciousness. Uh, mine isn't like yours, yours isn't like mine. We may be able to, to beat air at each other to communicate, but uh, that's about it. Um, this revelation was, no, that's, that's one way of doing things. The other way of doing things is to recognize that there is one consciousness and each of us borrow from that consciousness. Each of us, as if somebody was walking down the street in front of my apartment right now, I'm using that person's brain cells. I'm, you know, <laughs> they're not using them. <laughs> but, you know, the, it's like, like they're walking down with a sign saying, this space for rent, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I can use their, the, the consciousness that's around me. There's another force. And breakers will never find that force because they're not looking for it. They're, they've created the standard model and that standard model works really, really well for them. So the hell with everything that leaks out of the standard model. That's the place where we, where we start. So my, the mission of the Awakening Center is to start blending consciousness, to, be, to have us consciously conscious, um, to have us uh, blending the consciousness in such a way that it becomes purposeful and we get to do work with it. And this is something that I, when we think about Benjamin Franklin, we think about, you know, uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence, actually one of the few people that signed all three forming documents of the, of the, the uh, governments, uh, you know, inventor, etc. But the one principal thing that Bre Benjamin Franklin did that we don't really recognize him for was basically the creation of electricity. We knew about electricity for thousands of years. Anybody could look up in the sky and see lightning. Oh, the gods are fighting again, you know. But he actually made it useful. He made electricity go from a parlor game where they had these, these cranks, they would generate electricity and, and you go around the room shocking each other like, ah, that's so fun. Um, you do that by candlelight because nobody ever thought that electricity could be useful. And he developed the theories while almost barbecuing himself, um, the theories under which every Edison, Tesla, everybody else 
owes the debt of gratitude to, to um, Franklin. My goal is to make consciousness, to make this blended consciousness useful so that when we get to that point, collective humanity can say to the carbon in the atmosphere, we're really sorry for putting you there. We're not gonna put you there anymore. We would like for you to come down from the sky and it will simply come down. Um, it's actually the opposite of, of lifting the blocks up to the, the, the Great Pyramid. It's like taking things down. And um, it's not, um, those who, do, who say that's impossible, it's not that it's not possible, it's simply, how do we do this? What, what I heard you evoking was a level of what I'll call a Christ consciousness um, that a mass of people step into. The, the question I have is, so how do we make, how might we attempt to make that happen, Sharif, or to, or to, or to, 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 um, um, to manifest that on a, on a big, broad level? Okay. It's, this is ripe. This, I mean, this is why I'm staying up at night. I mean, this is really, really ripe right now. Mm -hmm. I don't have the, um, I hope I don't have the ego um, barriers that say it has to come through me. It may be coming through someone else a lot clearer, in which case I get out my pom-poms and say, go team, go, and go that way, go with that person. You know? Right now in Portland, there's something like between 10 and 15,000 people sleeping in tents on the streets, completely thrown away by society. Add to that another 10,000 of people who are couch surfing with friends. Add to that maybe another 10,000 of people. I mean, I've talked to so many people whose adult children are moving back home. And what you're seeing is a society that works for almost no one. If you take those people, the tired, the poor, the hungry that are, that are, are, are on our teeming shores of our streets right now. Okay, I wanna stand up for a second. Okay, no tents out there right now, but, um, and that's because I live right next, right near the Lloyd Center, and they're keeping the fiction that there are no um, homeless people in Portland. So they clear our streets pretty regularly of, of tents. They move them all about two blocks that way. Okay. And, and we say to people, you can become part of a future. And that future uh, looks like the butterfly. We're going someplace and, and we can get over our caterpillar ways and we can actually go someplace. The resources for that to happen exist right now in our society. Um, you know, the people, uh, you know, we look at uh, what's his face, Bezos and what's his face, um, the other guy with the face. Um, Elon, uh, Elon Musk. Well, no, not, well, that one too. Oh, but, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the, the space guys. The rocket okay. ship guys. Yeah, right. And they did that for a particular reason. 
And that is, you can't spend $10 billion. You can't spend $50 billion. You can't spend $100 billion. It's not possible. I've done like kind of my, my internal, like, like um, Einstein to, do, to do, develop the theory of relativity did an imaginary ride on a light wave, okay? So I've done a, my imaginary, okay, I got $150 billion and I need to spend it. And I'm not, gonna, <laughs> but the rules, the rules are, you can't spend it on something that's simply gonna make more money. You have to spend it on something you care about. And um, so you buy yourself the, um, the yacht, you get yourself the three or four or 50 houses. Um, uh, Jennifer Lopez has 30 multi-billion dollar houses. Um, she doesn't even get to visit them. Um, and you do all that and you've spent about $5 billion. Um, and, you, and the rest of it just sits there. So you're looking at it and, and so start creating these awakening villages and start creating that, that, those villages in such a way that they become self-generating. And that's what the whole thing about the, uh, Chronicles of the Upheavals is about. Um, lots and lots of people are living in intentional communities right now. And that's, I, I, I think that's better than trying to live in this kind of a community. But most intentional communities become very self-absorbed. They, they're, they're, they are really focused inward. The, the awakening center is focused outward and their primary goal is how do we create, how do we double ourselves? How do we create two awakening centers? And then once we've done that, how do we create four awakening centers? And then once we've done that, how do we create 16 awakening centers? How do we keep this thing going until it becomes a real alternative for people? I, have a, I can have a choice between um, living in this kind of a society, living in this sunset society, living in, in the terminal point of a toxic society, or I can live in the upswing. And I believe that there are lots and lots of people who would give up their privileges, give up the privileges of being in a toxic society in order for them to be um, a really uh, integral part of a living uh, fabric of society. And I write about that in Chronicles of the, Upheaval, of the Upheavals. Like, like, what does it mean for me to live this way? What does it mean to live uh, another way? Thank you for that exposition. So just to summarize, in my own mind with my own words what you've said it's 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 at some fundamental level a huge shift in consciousness it's letting go of the thinking that so many people have been programmed by and the resources are present we don't have a we don't have a resource challenge we have a distribution challenge and 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 there's a way in which we can use what we have if we transform the inner space um, 
as opposed to going to outer space. Uh, I want to actually remind uh, Kim of uh, a conversation that we had um, uh, back in, uh, I guess I was in San Francisco with Tessa and a bunch of other folks up in the um, hotel suite um, where, um, they were, we were talking about, okay, there's, there are the Bezoses and the, what's the guy, the other guys? Um, yeah, Richard they, Branson, Richard Branson. Richard Branson. So they've got, you know, the billions and billions of dollars, but there's another level of multi-billionaires. Um, the, um, uh, the people who bought um, um, who are working for Google, working for Apple in the beginning, they got a whole bunch of stock and got a little bit of pay. And they'll stop, the stock is worth billions of dollars now. And all they do, they go to work every day. They haven't even bought a new car. They, 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 they can buy a car company and they don't, they, they're still driving a used car. And, um, those people wouldn't, want to do something with their wealth. And they know that giving it to a soup kitchen is doing um, uh, absolutely nothing. That giving it to, you know, kind of building housing for, it's like that does nothing. What this, what the resources are looking for is a new idea. Um, and we are the ones that should be the holders of that new idea. I'm saying that specifically, um, uh, I, I think there are a number of young people that uh, have a great deal of arrogance around, oh, you are the people that created the problem. And they're walking around with exactly the same consciousness, but Oh, it's all, you know, all you people with the gray hair created the problem. It's like, yeah. And then, then it'll, then it'll be your turn. You know, um, if there's any problem to create that's create that's left, um, in terms of, um, what Stuart said around Christ consciousness, I agree, but I do not use that terminology because, um, it's loaded. And it's loaded with a particular way of approaching transcendence. I've let go of all of those ways, or I should say, I embrace all of them to the point that uh, it becomes, um, uh, it, it, be, it literally is one. All of our wisdom teachers, um, whether it's the Christ consciousness, the Buddha consciousness, the Lao Tzu consciousness, etc. All of them were pointing in exactly the same direction, and and just saying that could get me killed, and I won't even know who fired the shot because all of them could be pissed off at me. <laughs> and so the challenge is: how do we take the consciousness 
without taking the baggage that's all that, that, that is associated with that consciousness that says my way is the only way that can be uh, that, where we can do this. Um, my friend Matthew Fox, and he and I have been engaged in a series of um, conversations recently. There's also been, been, been sparking a lot of the stuff that we're, we're talking about. Um, uh, he says that um, all of the world's religions are like wells that are all plugged into the same underground river. And all of the fundamentalists believe that their well is the only one that has water in it. Everybody else has poison. And so the challenge is how do we embrace the entire river? And that's the function of how we work on blended consciousness. Now we know how to blend, blend consciousness. It's just that each group is trying to blend consciousness for their group as opposed to for the whole. Um, if you have ever been in an ecstatic spiritual experience and you can you feel the boundary of your consciousness start to both expand and leave you. If you've ever been to a really close basketball game during the finals, <laughs> That, you know, you are you are having um, a shared consciousness experience. Um, is it possible for us to do that outside of our home team, outside of our home church, outside of our home species? Can we do that with other beings? And the answer for that is, of course, is yes. Now, the question is, how do you make that happen? Um, one of the things that happened, um, I was supposed in, in, that, in that bad uh, tsunami, um, the Christmas time tsunami, I think it was 2008, uh, that hit lots of countries, including Sri Lanka. Um, I was supposed to be in Sri Lanka at my getaway spot and I would have been standing on the beach when it hit. Okay, that was, and um, I got appendicitis here in the United States. And um, my kids are, are saying, oh, it's too bad you got appendicitis. And then when we heard about the tsunami, I said, we're really happy you got appendicitis. And so um, one, of the, one of the things that happened during uh, 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 the tsunami Right before the first wave hit, um, they, there are a number of elephants that are trained as um, basically bulldozers, okay? They lift up trees, they, they haul stuff away, etc. And the mahouts are the people who um, train the elephants. And at night, they, they chain the elephants, uh, put a chain around them. And it's very, it, it's, it's almost symbolic because as soon as the, the right before the, um, the, the first wave hit, all of the, the elephants snapped their chains and started running up the hill. Mm. And the people, they had no idea what was going on, but they said, <laughs> something's going on. So we're, they started running after the elephants. And as, they, as the humans and elephants are running up the hill, the elephants are picking people up and putting them on their backs. 
Now, fat is the kind, oh, and, they, and the elephants got up to a certain elevation on the hill and then just stopped. And everybody's like, what, what, what just happened? And then 15 minutes later, the first wave comes in and they saw why the elephants had done that. Now, that kind of uh, communication without words, that kind of um, uh, messaging is available to us all the time, but not when I'm thinking about myself as an individual human being. When I recognize that I am an integral part of the whole, and I don't mean that, like, like I, I can think that, I can think that all the time. Um, when I recognize I'm an integral part of the whole, things will come up for all of us. I may be sitting for, here for a re revelation and one of you gets the revelation and tells the rest of it. Okay, well, I, that's my revelation too. Um, uh, can I say one more thing and then I'm gonna really um, probably say another. Um, I have, I have been, um, uh, I have had a number of journeys uh, with the um, plant medicine called ayahuasca. I don't know if any of you have had that. I don't know if any of you want to share that on well, while the recording is going on here. <laughs> yeah, and, and for me, it's like, like, um, it's, I, if you've ever had an ayahuasca experience, you know this is not a drug experience. This is not. Uh, this is something completely different. It is the world's first psychoactive drug. Um, uh, it is. Um, I could keep talking about it, but I'll just give you one experience. Along with everything else, I would not. I only take journeys with people where there where there is a conductor. And that conductor has to be steeped in the traditions of the people uh, he or she is is conducting for. Um, and so I've been. This is during like my. I've I've done five journeys. Is I think this is during my third journey. There are thirty people in the room. It's completely dark, um, and the conductor is singing. And. Um, chanting in Shipibo, which is the language of the people in South America that that uh, were that where the ayahuasca revealed itself, and we're all having different kinds of experiences. But about it seems like halfway through, it's really hard to tell time. The healer starts singing a particular song in Shipibo. And all 30 of us start singing the same song in Shipibo. Now, at the time, there were two of me present in this body. Um, and the two of us are having a fight. And the one that's talking to you right now was saying to the other one, shut up. You don't. You can't sing in Shipibo. You don't understand Shipibo. You 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 are going to embarrass us. You're you're you're. Um, it's not possible for you to sing this song. 
And the other one was saying, shut up and take a deep breath because there's another stanza coming up. <laughs> and so I'm singing along with, this, with this, this fight going on inside of me. till finally the fighter was saying, I don't remember when choir practice was, but we sound pretty good. <laughs> now, the, the, so we sing that song, we go the rest of the evening, we spend the night in the place that we're, we're, where we're having the ceremony. The next morning, I'm talking to a young woman. This is her first ayahuasca experience. And she's in the middle of a crisis, an existential crisis. And she's walking from room to room, saying to herself, how the fuck could I sing that song? Mm -hmm. And I knew she was having some trouble, so I called her over and uh, she said, I've read books on ayahuasca. I know this kind of thing is possible. She said, I can accept that you sang a song in a language that you don't understand. I cannot accept that I did that. It's not possible to do that. And I said, you know, you've got an issue here. I said, you have to walk out that door, never contact us again, and, and, and believe that this was just simply some kind of a drug-induced hallucination and go about living your normal life. Or you have to accept that everything that you've been taught about consciousness is wrong or at the very best limited. Your choice, I can tell you, she was sitting right beside me during the ceremony. I said, you sang that song and you sounded really good. But the, um, the men sang the same notes as the healer sang. The women were singing an octave above and were singing harmonics. They were, we sounded really good, okay? And so I said, you know, you are going to have to um, redo how you think about us, about what us, whatever me means, whatever us means. That's true for all of us, that we have to do this redo. And they're very, even the people who are doing the ayahuasca ceremony were not prepared to do that redo. Uh, so we got a lot of work in front of us and, you know, let's get to it. You know, that's, that's, my, um, that's my story and I'm sticking with it. That's a wonderful story, Sharif. I just want to thank you um, for sharing the story the wisdom, the possibility, the path, um, all of those things. You know, it may be hard for a lot of people to grasp as your final story uh, <laughs> revealed, but I think that that's the edge that we're all on. So mm -hmm. um, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, thank all of you for doing this. This is, yeah, now I'm going to have to wind myself back down to get back into bed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and you're also now part of the community <laughs> okay excellent excellent yeah so um to the extent that i i uh, can do so i would like to continue our conversations um i'm i'm um 
uh, as I'm, I'm getting close to an actual outline for the Book of Power, um, I wrote my first book was called The Power of One. And so my working title on this one is The Power of All. And um, uh, seeing uh, where that goes, uh, the development of a whole new method of analysis to let go of all of the, the different analyses we've had of uh, society, you know, the dialectical materialism uh, analysis and its most recent offshoot uh, being critical race theory, um, all of the different stuff they taught in, um, uh, in school in terms of political science, which isn't political science. It's not even a political art. It's basically the, the political mess uh, and seeing how we can, we can not change that system, but make that system obsolete. Um, and, um, and how we get to uh, levels of spirituality that transcend religion, uh, that, that let go of the, restrict, the strictures of religion and allow us to, um, to, to, to move forward. So. Uh, yeah, lots of stuff to to, um, uh, to deal with. And then after I do all that, I'll retire. Uh <laughs> Great. So before, yeah. you, be, before you retire, since we have thrown time as we traditionally know it out the window, um, mm. does anyone have any, any kind of uh, pressing uh, question uh, for Sharif or comment? Uh, Mark, why am I not surprised that you do? Go right ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Sharif, it's been incredibly good. Um, there's display. Okay. So, um, and you, you're working, you, you've, you've created a, a very compelling display of the map that you're talking about. I'd like to introduce that there's another map that I've been building. It's on technologies and on indigenous people's knowledge. So it, it, it goes the same, a lot of the same places you've been, uh, but because somebody needed to do it, I've been focused on technology since I took Bucky's class in 1966 on comprehensive design science. I noted that you were talking about some things that indicated you have some exposure to Bucky too. So, mm -hmm. uh, so with the guy I'm working with who was Bucky's protege, uh, we do have the technologies necessary to turn the corner, to turn the whole world, get rid of fossil fuels by 2030 and a bunch of other things. So what I'd like to do is to sort of work with you and create a display, you know, sort of give you a display of uh, a conceptual display of what is possible in that realm. It also includes knowledge bases, which help show the different cultures and, you know, like there's uh, 867 ecoregions in the world, according to the World Wildlife Fund's uh, higher, you know, terrestrial ecoregions webpage, and those are consistent patterns of ecosystems. There used to be 10,000 cultures in the world. There were 10,000 ecosystems, roughly, too. So each culture mm -hmm. create or eco ecosystem, yeah. So. There's a way of thinking about all that that I've been working on for 60 years. So that is something I'd like to display for you. 
so that you can be sitting where you're sitting and saying, this is how all this works and this is how that fits. Mm -hmm. um, number one, yes. Number two, um, I've been very um, uh, positively impacted by uh, the work of a number of people and Buckminster Fuller is, is definitely one of them. Um, the problem, so, so uh, Buckminster Fuller said, um, you don't protest the existing system, you basically come up with a better one that makes it obsolete. The problem with that is that in the, our society, we measure every possible system by money. Does it make me more money? Yeah. You know, actually, these does. And all, all of these, all these technologies do they're more profitable than what we got right now um but if i don't perceive that if i don't perceive that i can make money the way that i've been making it's not that 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 it doesn't cost anything it's that i need to make obscene profits and not because i need obscene profits just because this is the way that this this is my consciousness this is the way that i see that the world works so along with all that you're saying, um, we have to um, uh, understand that the, the way we are thinking about this has to shift and change. Two pieces. I uh, spent time in Cuba and uh, Cuba is, um, or at least when I was there, um, actually probably still is, uh, the most bike friendly uh, place on the planet. Um, there are more bicyclists in Cuba per capita than anywhere else in the Western hemisphere. Now, each and every one of those people that's on their bicycle in Cuba is dreaming about a Ford. So they were able to change people's behavior without changing the consciousness and they'll find that that will turn right around and bite them in the butt um so part of all of this is literally making ourselves fit to be an integral part of uh not just this planet but of the entire universe and on that thank note thank you for taking us to this place my friend Mm -hmm. no. Well, thank you for having me, and I've I've really enjoyed it. And uh, oh, I would like to get a copy of the of this recording because um, it should be really interesting. Um, and um, on that note, let me not bring up another topic, but but leave. Okay, <laughs> talk to you at another talk to you at another point. Okay, thank yeah, you so bye. much, Rita. Yeah, bye. Mm -hmm.